series, particularly a, a kind of a pause, if you might, in uh, our series in which we're learning to be lifelong followers of Jesus. But maybe it's not a pause, it's maybe just that series, the Advent version. We are in the season of Advent, the season of waiting, uh, with expectation for Christ to come again. And so as we uh, do that, let's reflect on the book of Matthew, not the entire book. But let's reflect on chapter 11, verses 2, 1 through 11. I'll go ahead and read these, these verses for us. John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Now those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? Prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not been one risen, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that while the Gospels are not biography, they give such clear, clear details about the human condition that we can track with them, that we can see in this ancient text, even our own lives, as we try and understand the history. So, Lord, I pray that as we go ahead and continue to dialogue with you and worship, Lord, that in this time that you would speak to us, that you would differentiate my voice from yours, your word from ours, that your spirit would move and make connections that we need to make so that we can be more human, so that we can be uh, more loving to one another, and that we can understand this season so that it might bring us to worship. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first Advent, uh, the first Advent, the first Advent is about waiting for the Messiah. The second Advent is about waiting for the Messiah to come again. And John the Baptist is a pretty important figure in this understanding of Advent. He's a pivotal figure. He's a trans transitional figure because he, in one sense, prepared the way 
for the first advent. Right? Prepares the way for the first advent. He declares the coming of the advent, the, the coming of the Lord. But he also shows us how to live in light of the second advent, or excuse me, in light of the first advent. He teaches us how to live with the knowledge that God is coming again, that Christ is coming again. So he's an important figure for us. But how does he show us how to live? And we look at this passage. How does he show us how to live in light of the second advent? Well, he shows us by his asking of questions. John is faithful in this, in waiting for the second advent by, by being somebody who asks questions of God, who asks questions of Jesus. Now, what's interesting to me about John the Baptist is that, like many of us, he has known Jesus all of his life. That he, uh, from the time he was born, he had a positive sort of connection with Jesus. That he, um, how would we say it? Uh, that he grew up with many of the same assumptions that a lot of us have. Um, and yet, we also have to recognize that in many ways, a lot of us don't have, we don't have the same assumptions. Many of us have not grown up with a knee-jerk positive response to Christianity or a knee-jerk positive response to to Jesus, but John the Baptist, in many ways, um, thought of Jesus in messianic terms. We'll talk further about it, but I understand it. this is New York City. We don't breathe that same air anymore. We don't make those same connections. And so questions, both for those who have assumptions, positive, you might say, assumptions about Jesus, and those who might, you might say, have negative assumptions about Jesus. Questions are important for all of us. For all of us. And so this is a time for discovery, you might say. Christmas is a time for discovery, to ask questions and have our assumptions challenged, perhaps checked. And so today, as, as we follow John's lead, let's follow him into this time of discovery. Remember that Christmas, even as we get older, is about discovery, about discovery and rediscovery. So let's discover these three things. The three things I think we can learn from this passage or discover from this passage is that human beings are hardwired for blessing. Human beings are hardwired to pursue being blessed. Second is, is that a sign of wisdom is often a posture of naivete. A sign of wisdom is often a posture of naivete. And the third is that human beings want God to tell their story. Human beings want, to tell, want God to tell their story. So first, humans are hardwired for blessing. So what we see here is that John the Baptist is in a tight spot. If you don't know the story, John the Baptist has been arrested. He's a political prisoner. He was part of some sort of silly game in which um, in which uh, uh, you know, one of his political opponents wanted him to be put in prison because he was speaking truth to power. So he's put into prison and he's there and he's tight in a tight spot. He had a thriving ministry, a catalytic ministry, and all of a sudden he stopped. So he's in this tight spot and he's asking questions and he, he's looking for answers. And so what he does is he sends word to Jesus. Uh, he, he sends word to Jesus and, and we know that he's in a kind of tight spot because the the word that he sends is both one of necessity and responsibility. I say necessity because 
he couldn't actually get to Jesus Christ. He hasn't seen Jesus in a while, so he can't get to him. So it's one of necessity that he sends people to go get them. But it's also one of responsibility because he's very aware that he may never leave this person. And therefore, the, the, when he sends his disciples to ask Jesus this question, the answer that they actually retreat is the, the answer that they need to actually receive and believe and probably extend on themselves. So it's a dramatic moment, you might say. He sends them with a weighted message that they probably, all John can know, will be the, the perpetuators of this, message, of this question. And what is the question? The question is, are you the one to to come, or should we expect someone else? John's whole life has been preparing the way for the Lord. He's asking this question Are you the one to come, or should we prepare for somebody else? Now, the question, Are you the one, in some sense, doesn't need explanation for us. So. And he's asking this question what that means is, Are you the one who's going to? Unite Israel, restore Israel, liberate Israel. But we know what it means to, to look for the one. Right? All the popular movies of our day in the last 20 years are that theme is just built in there. Right? Looking for the one, whether it's uh, Avatar or Matrix or Game of Thrones, that we've seen it, Lord uh, of the Rings, Harry Potter, right? Those stories are all about looking and discovering the one. And it's not just the main point of those movies. It's actually what sucks us into those stories. We love the idea that there is a one out there. Not romantic, holistically, spiritually, that will, will, you know, in some sense, answer all the questions that we have about ourselves, all the questions about the world, Make sense of our lives. Is there the one out there? That's what these stories are all about. So it's, it's what we love about those stories. It's the wonder and the fun of watching them. Because is that actually possible? But also how fun it is to see that the person or the character in that story realize that they, they are one. And discover that to see out of their lives blessing of that they become fully realized that out of their own character, the people around them actually become blessed. Things change. So we love that kind of story. We don't, in some sense, that doesn't need any, any explanation for us, right? Because that's exactly what Israel has been waiting for. They're waiting for the one. The one who will bring hope in a dark and, and scary world. So I think we can learn a lot about something about the human from those popular stories, but also from John's questions. That is, is that human beings, ancient and modern, are hardwired to pursue true blessing. We're hardwired to pursue it. And yet, because, to work the metaphor, we're, we're corrupted. There's a virus, you might say. Uh, so we're hardwired to pursue blessing. We'll look for it anywhere. We'll look for it anywhere. John, though he has the same struggles as you and I, 
is a particular calling. God's a prophet. And because he's a prophet, he's called by God. And therefore, I think you'd have a hard time convincing John that Jesus wasn't the one. But because he's hardwired, he's hardwired to pursue an answer, to ask hard questions, even if it scares him. And so as a prophet, he knows he's hardwired to, to know God, to know the one, that he's hardwired by God and believes that each and every one of us are hardwired in the same way. So he comes and he asks some kinds of questions that you and I might feel uncomfortable asking. Are you the one, he says to Jesus, or is there someone else? My heart is meant to engage the one. So that's the point, right? Movies are hardwired to that end, we pursue it to that end. And yet, I think in the last 10 years, at least in our culture, we don't ask that question nearly as much as I think culture is used to. We don't, we, uh, despite our cultural fascination with this theme in our real lives, in some sense we've moved on. And I think there's a couple of reasons for why maybe we've moved on. Some of them I think is because we're disappointed. We're disappointed with institutions that have let us down because leaders in those institutions, the ones who lead those institutions, have not lived up to the calling, have not lived up to the responsibility. They've wounded, they've hurt people when they were meant to be sources of healing and hope and blessing. So I think the disappointment, the solution are part of that equation. But I think the, one of the primary characteristics of that is not just that we're disappointed or disillusioned, not just that we're dismayed, but that we're distracted from seeking what we're actually meant to live in a distracted age. Uh, Bo Burnham is a comedian, but he seems to be far more than that. Uh, social commentator, brilliant, he's a comedian, uh, funny. On, uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was on a panel and he was talking about the influence of social media on the culture. And overnight, uh, as things do, this uh, little interview went viral. And this is what he said as he was talking about, you know, sort of the big social media companies and how going public has uh, put a demand on them to continue to grow and to make human beings essentially profit centers for them. And so he says, they are coming for every second of your life. It's because these companies, and then he names them, they went public. And they went to shareholders, so they have to grow. Their entire model are based off, off of growth. They cannot stay stagnant. They have to get more of you. And then he says, you know, as human beings, we used to colonize land. We used to colonize the entire earth. But we've colonized the entire earth. And then they realized they can colonize human attention. So now they're trying to colonize every minute of your life. Every single free moment you have is a moment you can be looking at your they could be gathering information so that they can be gathering information to target ads. That's what's happening. They're coming for every free second you have, and that's dark. That's really, really dark and really, really scary. And then he says, you know what? The kids know it. Like the whole joke on the internet is everyone's like, this place sucks, right? I mean, that's the kind of the thing. That's why their memes and talking about kids are all ironic and detached. 
it's self-referential and 12 layers deep because the truth for these kids is completely dead. It's completely dead to them and they don't. But the first point, in a world of disappointment and distraction, never forget that you were wired for something more. You were wired for a blessing that should help us sift through our disappointments and dismay because it's so beautiful on the other side. We were wired to, for a blessing that has helped, that uh, gives us such command of our mind and our agency that we are able to be less distracted, you might say, than all the information that's coming. The blessing is so great that we're able to discern what is uh, between a, a, you know, a sea of flat information, what is beautiful and what is what is truly enlightenment and what is just some good? The good for a blessing. The second point that we can discover at Christmas is that a sign of wisdom is often a posture of naivete. That's a good thing. When I talk, when I what I'm referring to when I think about naivete is it's a posture of innocence and curiosity. To be mature, uh, to be a mature, you know, actualized person is to both be innocent and curious about the world around you. Like adults acting as children on Christmas, standing under their looking underneath the tree, knowing something good should be there for them, expected, curious, and yet full of wonder about what it could possibly be. So John is like that in this prison. He's like that as he kind of sits on death row. He's, you know, and it's praying to God by reaching out to Jesus. Innocent of wonder, asking the right question. And how we ask questions according to the Bible is actually very important. You know, there's a place in one of the other Christmas narratives where the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and then goes to Mary. And the angel comes to Zechariah and asks, and he says, your wife Elizabeth is about to have a child. Zechariah and Elizabeth are far past childbearing age, and Zechariah says, how can this be? And the angel says, it will be, and you'll have to watch it very quietly. He shuts his mouth for nine months. Kind of judgment. <clears throat> and he's not innocent and curious. He's skeptical, cynical because of what God can do. But then the angel comes to Mary. When the angel comes to Mary, he says, you're going to give birth to the one. Holiness itself. And she says the exact same words as Zachariah did in chapter 30. How can this be? Zachariah says, well, let me just tell you how this and instead of having her mouth shut for nine months, she sings one of the most beautiful songs in all of human history, the fact that the innocence and curiosity of God were naivete is the motivation of the heart. And that's the motivation for John here is he's asking this, this particular question, this particular question. And so the question uh, gets to Jesus. God is 
you know, poise to ask these things, to discover new things about Jesus and the actual way that the Messiah works. And Jesus, in receiving this, is poised to help them. And so what does he do? Jesus sends John's disciples back, and they share that Jesus is doing all the things that the Messiah is going to do. So he says here, he says, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now notice that John doesn't just send Jesus back with verbiage, a handwritten note. He sends Jesus back. He sends Jesus sends John's disciples back, having been disciples of Jesus. Notice the language. It says, go back to John and report what you hear and see. Which means that they spent time with Jesus. They saw him do these things. It wasn't just a note or report. They came back with lives transformed. To give a word of hope to a man in a dungeon. It's the But they go back and they report what they see in order to strengthen John. Jesus sends back John's disciples to the disciple him. And in the prison, they discover that Jesus really is the one for whom God has sent. So, how important is that? So important. Especially for us. You know, we hear words like, you know, the blind receiving sight, the lame walk, and those things actually have, but they're actually really bad fortunes too. But we live in a culture blamed for convenience, in a culture saturated with skepticism and irreverence. We're disappointed, dismayed, distracted, unwilling, wounded to the point of being unable to hear, numb to the reality of God working all around us. And yet the words John, uh, Jesus and John's disciples are important for us. Go back. Go back. And I think for us to go back and discover this Jesus that we maybe grew up with and have assumptions about, but we're not quite moved the way that we maybe once were. Or if you were not raised in a home in which Jesus had any relevance, go back and look again to the claims of the New Testament. Go back with an innocence and a curiosity. Go back and look and experience that same kind of hope Transformation. You know, John experienced this pretty much all of his life. It's what scholars call progressive illumination. Progressive illumination. John, you know, John and Jesus are cousins. They're a couple of months apart. They live within walking distance of each other. So you can imagine that John grew up hearing stories about Jesus from his mom and hearing stories about himself. They grew up sort of walking in parallel, knowing. There was something unique about them. God was at work in their life. And yet, in John 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, and it's as if he's never seen him before. 
But we know that's not true. So in John 1, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Let me read that again. A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Jesus was not born before John the Baptist. Jesus was born after John the Baptist. So what is he talking about? He's making a, a pretty bold claim about the nature of Jesus. That from a human standpoint, he's younger, but from an eternal standpoint, he is from all eternity. And then he says, to that point, which makes sense, he says, I myself did not know him. But the reason I came was that he might be revealed. You ever know somebody for a long time? When you get to know them, you're like, now I really know this person. I've never known them before. John and Annie were friends. Sorry, I'm ripping. John and Annie were friends for a long time. But I would imagine at some point, start to look at each other different. To see each other different. Or do they really want And the real impact that they can have on each other. He knew but he didn't know. Go back and discover. This kind of innocence and this kind of uh, curiosity is actually called the first naivete. It's a theological concept that when people come to know Christ, they often say, I knew him, but I didn't know him. And so there's a first naivete, Walter Brueggemann would say, and there's a second naivete. Let me just read what he says, because I think it's helpful for us. The first naivete is the pre-critical. It believes everything, indeed, too much. It is an enjoyment of well-being, but unaware of oppression and incongruity. It is a glad reception of community, but unaware of hurt. It can afford to be uncritical because everything makes sense, but growth in a deep life means moving to criticism. A new awareness of self and conflict, of others and dishonest interest, interestedness, of God and enmity. That's the first naivete. But the second naivete is post-critical, not pre-critical. The second naivete has been through the pit and is now prepared to hope all things. But now hope is after the pit. It now knows that finally things have been reduced and need to be reduced over. It knows that our experience is demystified, demystified as it must be. But it knows that even in a world demystified and reduced, grace intrudes and God makes all things new. The ones who give thanks and sing genuinely new songs in this world must be naive. Or they would not bother to sing songs and give thanks. But it is praise in which the anguish of disorientation is not forgotten. What kind of naive functionality? Do you just believe Jesus because your parents told you to believe Jesus? Or you're in a culture and, and you don't find yourself growing in some way that you're called to grow? It's not a healthy naive Christian 
It's not a healthy value for anyone to live if we don't examine the claims. There's a sec first and second value to say they both beneficial. The third point, we want God to tell our stories. You know, John didn't get to hear what Jesus actually says about him. But Jesus says the most remarkable things about him, doesn't he? What does he say? He says that among those born of women, there has not been not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. In effect, he's saying he's the greatest man who's ever lived up to that point. But in the culture, in the time, he would have been a joke. You know, John the Baptist has head chopped because some king was full of lust. And he was challenged in front of a court, gave this, this woman dancing before him three wishes or something. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And to save himself embarrassment, he had to do it. Even though he actually liked John. And one of the saddest parts in the scripture is it says that these disciples, they went to retrieve the body, buried it. But the, but the impression you get is he was not buried poorly. But he wasn't buried intact. And what shame and humility, you know, of a leader to be buried in such a disgraceful way. He would have been a dark, cruel joke to the people who actually did it. And that would have permeated the, the land permeated the culture and said a lot about was John real or was he false? Was he really a messenger of God preparing the way? Was he just a charlatan? But Jesus swoops in and he tells his story for him. Nobody born of woman was greater than him. Because he was so closely associated with because he asked all the right questions. Because he lived boldly. How do we live boldly in this world? The city. It says, Jesus says, did you go out there to see a weed waving, a reed waving in the wind? And in fact, he's saying, did you go out there to see nature? Go out to see John. Did you just go to see nature? Did you go out to see a rich man dressed in fine clothes? No. What were you looking for? What are you looking for? You're looking for a prophet? Yes, that's John. And he tells the story John was steady, John was sober, John was a servant. He was said he was special. And in the kingdom of God, he was second to God. We need to, we long to hear our stories told, but most of us will never get that opportunity, will we? But I think this is a reflection of the kinds of stories that will be shared about unfollowers and followers of Christ. That your stories, no matter how they end, will be unique. That you will be lifted up and exalted by the only voice that really matters. John prepared the way for Jesus, not just in his vocal ministry, but in his death. Because Jesus Christ died, and even 
first step that John the Baptist did, so that we wanted to get to know God. And we have some questions for you. What questions are you asking of God? What's the posture of the heart in which you're asking? Let Jesus tell your story. Let us find him and see him as the one. Let's live lives. Heavenly Father.